Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Welcome back to another day, a fantastic day for an interview. I've got Keegan White with me. She's a fellow traveler and she has in her journeys found her own superpower. And that superpower is to get out of her own way. And in a moment, you will know uh, where we are going with that. And it is, it's one of the most important bits. So Keegan, thank you so much for coming on to my show. I'm absolutely honored to have you here. Absolutely. Thanks so much for asking me, Stefan. I really appreciate it. Uh, we two met uh, when we were together presenting on a summit by a friend of us, uh, Leslie McNabb, and it was a beautiful rise to recovery uh, focused on, on the loved ones that are dealing with people who are in active addiction or have been. And it was lovely. And when I, when I saw you there, when I saw what you were presenting, I thought, I need to get her onto my show. There was no much doubt in my head. So thank you so much for agreeing. Um, you, your story, uh, how do you get out of your own way? How did that materialize, that heading, that hook that you gave me? What made you come to that particular part uh, or to that particular point in your journey? That's such a loaded question because uh, that's probably, I have spent uh, the better part of my adult life working on getting out of my own way. It is not a one and done. It is an ongoing process. I feel like you know, I was getting in my own way. I can trace it back all the way to seventh grade. I was in a dance competition. I, I went to this dance competition. It was like, I don't know how many girls, a lot of girls showed up. And I, basically the competition was you had to dance and then you got into the preliminaries and you went on to the next round. And at that first round, I remember just looking around and thinking, these people are so much better than me. And then I got through the preliminaries and so it went down to 10 dancers and then we had months to prepare. And the whole time my mindset was, I'm not good enough. I don't even know why I'm trying. And so I went to this competition, I basically half-assed it, you know, and when it was all done, my dance teacher pulled me aside. She was furious at me. She was like, what happened? Why didn't you even try? And I explained to her, I didn't even think that it was, I was good enough or that I would even do well. And she said, when you did that first round with all those other dancers, you had the highest score of anybody there. <sighs> just threw it away. <clears throat> and I didn't realize it then, but when I started doing step work, that's when I started really looking back at how long I have really been getting in my own way. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. And isn't it, it's the, the imposter syndrome. It's that mm -hmm. little voice that is so strong in so many of us. And it is just, that is, if you, if you guys out there, if you look around in your sphere of influence and your, your, the people you know, and look at the person that you admire most because she is so intelligent and beautiful and up there and mm -hmm. other way around, he is so, wow, what a man. And if you take them aside and strip away the mask and ask them, but you know, uh, do you get voices of self-doubt, etc.? They will roll their eyes, yeah. And the most beautiful woman say, yes, I feel so ugly. You know, mm -hmm. they look at my nose and you think, what the hell are you talking about, girl? Yeah. <laughs> and it is, it is, it is so common. And mm -hmm. why is that? Why the heck have we got this mechanism in us that is so self-destructive? And even worse, why do we listen to that nutter in our, in our head? It's so crazy. I know. Well, you know, I can answer that question for you uh, because through my whole journey through recovery and then getting into mindset work, I, that's, that's part of my mission is to teach people what that voice is. And uh, it, that voice, we often think, because it's so loud and it's in our own head, we think that voice is our voice. Mm -hmm. And then we take it at face value that those words must be true. Mm -hmm. And what's really happening is this is a part of the brain. It's the amphibian part of the brain that gets kicked up whenever we are presented with an opportunity for growth. But it gets kicked up because it's in survival mode. And so when it gets kicked up, 
those voices come out and it manifests as I'm not good enough. I'm not qualified enough. I don't have enough experience. Nobody wants to hear from me anyway, all of the things. And so it sounds super counterintuitive because it's the survival mechanism to come up. It's trying to keep us safe, but in order to keep us safe, it's also trying to keep us where we are because it doesn't want us to experience rejection. It doesn't want us to experience criticism or failure or even success. So that is the brain's strategy is to keep us safe. And when you can start to recognize that this isn't a, it's a part of you, but it's not the whole sum of you. When you're able to recognize it and separate from it and go, okay, there you are again, voice. What are you trying to protect me from right now? We're able to to detach from that voice and be able to take much bigger leaps into moving forward and getting out of our own way. And there is actually a genetic uh, reason for that, a developmental reason for that. If we go 50,000 years back, you were living in small tribes on Mm -hmm. cave floors. And the only way you could survive is being part of that tribe. So it was absolutely paramount that you don't piss people off too much because then they throw you out of their tribe. And that Mm -hmm. is virtually certain death. 50,000 years ago, because you're alone, you're freezing, you're this, you just can't survive out there. And so it was ingrained in us on a very primary kind of genetic level, just as much as needle phobia. You know, 50,000 years ago, people realized if you don't get stabbed, you live longer. So therefore, they handed it down, don't get stabbed to your children. And somehow that also got ingrained in the, in the genes. Mm-hmm. So one in 10 have needle phobia. This, this kind of voice, I've been like you, I've been fighting it for much of my life. But mm-hmm. actually, the more I understood where we came from, the more it actually made sense to me that, that you want to do everything to stay within that tribe. Therefore, don't piss people off. Therefore, don't do too much negative things and don't do too much positive things. So sounds all nice. But then, of course, uh, there comes the alcohol. There comes all the other things. So one of three of us are using or have been using chemical addiction. And uh, trust me, trust me, guys. uh, When you're in active addiction, you don't do so many nice things. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm sure the tribe would have thrown the out. Well and surely, long time ago. So, and I mean, certainly, I wasn't the nicest guy when I was drinking. And I know you have had your story, Keegan. Mm-hmm. Um, here, you were uh, having dealt with, or actually having realized that from from an early time on, hey, there is something in your way. How did you then cope? What were, as a teenager, what were your coping mechanisms? Did you learn something productive or did you soon find that the shy me, oh, give me a glass of of something and the shy me is in the side? It's a little bit of both. So, you know, like going back to the story I shared at the beginning, that was a form of self-sabotage. And so that became a pattern where you know, very early on, one of my patterns was I'm not good enough. I'm not qualified enough. So I'm just not going to try. And so that was not necessarily a coping strategy, but definitely a strategy that I used to protect myself. Now, my experience with my drug and alcohol journey was that I, I tried you know, marijuana some in high school. I drank some in high school, but and I, I do have a couple instances in high school where I would get like really, really drunk. But it wasn't like I've heard some people say, you know, from that first one, I was off to the races. That wasn't my experience. Um, I grew up with parents that drank. Um, I don't think that they're alcoholics. Uh, my mom has passed away now. My mom would drink occasionally. My dad, my dad drank every day. So I grew up around drinking. It was very common for me to come home. My dad, you know, pop open beer and have a couple beers. So it was very much conditioned that this is this is a way of life. And so when I started really struggling was uh, in college. And that's when my mom had been diagnosed with a very rare disease my senior year of high school. Um, I had gone through my own trauma in high school. And so when I went off to college, that's when I started drinking heavily. And that's when once I started, I could not stop. And so that was the biggest coping skill that I found was 
The alcohol numbed the pain that I was in. The alcohol gave me the superpowers to be the person that I wanted to be, which was the you know outgoing, life of the party type of girl, which I was in the beginning of the night. But inevitably, it always ended up, and I do say always, um, because very rarely did I end up not you know, punching somebody or in, in the floor crying or just completely blacked out. So um, it was a coping strategy, but then it just brought on so many more problems after that. <laughs> Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde, isn't it? Oh, 100%. <laughs> I uh, had a lot of anger issues that would come out when I was drinking, like a lot. Of, you know, I was really, really mad. I'd been sexually assaulted. So I was carrying that around. I was really angry. I was really mad because my mom was really sick. And, you know, you're 17, 18, 19 years old. Not a lot of coping skills. Didn't know how to deal with that stuff. This was in the 90s. We weren't really talking about a lot of these issues. And we certainly weren't talking about rape as it is today. Like I was internalizing a lot of what happened to me that I brought it on myself. So then I was just drinking more to cover up all the pain that I experienced. Firstly, I'm very sorry to hear that, but it is such a common story that always, we are always shake my head. I was blessed to to live in friendship circles uh, or, or at my school, there was no rape. That was whilst we were all doing stupid things, that kind of sexual violence uh, that is so seemingly prevalent in the United States is uh, was certainly not there where I, those people that I met and I thought I met Pretty all the strata of society, so there's clearly something something there in the United States. But regardless of that, that is just one form of trauma, an awful, okay. awful trauma. But we all have our traumas, and I always say it's not a pissing contest. It doesn't right. doesn't doesn't matter that someone was on a battlefield and had seen blood and gore and if friends pulverized. Uh, and you had maybe just that, just a road traffic accident, uh, mm -hmm. just uh, someone looking at you in a funny way, some, uh, someone maybe touching touching your bottom. And it's not rape, it's not nothing, but for you, the trauma is there, the, the feelings are there. So therefore it's so important to realize that at this stage, that, that really there is so much trauma and often, what our mind does, it doesn't really want to be reminded. So it, right. it just puts band-aids on it. And sure. uh, you know, I mean that's coffee. That's a good band-aid, okay, as in my books at least. But if that here was me seven years ago, ten years ago, well, there would probably be some bit of something else mixed in there. Um, okay. So or you know, it is beautiful, the sun has gone up. What a lovely day. Let's celebrate uh, with a glass of champagne. Anything to numb the pain. Yeah. And it is such a such an easy trap to fall into. Now you well, you the alcohol was for you there. You also mm -hmm. you also experienced other other drugs. You you played around with other things, haven't you? I did, and did and before I talk about that, I just want to talk about trauma in the brain and how, you know, I think. We, as a society, are really good at comparing our trauma to other people and then minimizing it. And the thing about our brains is that everybody's brain is different. So what, you know, a person could go out and experience one level of trauma and I could experience the same thing and depending upon our brains could have very different reactions. And so I think it's really important to understand that just like what you said, for some people, you know, like uh, a car accident could be on par with somebody who's gone to war and witnessed, you know, atrocities. Exactly. And it's not about comparing it. It's about understanding how your brain has received that information and how it's processed and how it's affected you. Exactly. Yeah. And also it's worthwhile saying that uh, if, uh, in your in your life, you go through through different stages. You go through different, uh, maybe more vulnerable times. And if the, even a smaller trauma occurs, then but your brain is already on the back foot. Mm -hmm. You've already elevated from a normal state to a state of stress, and maybe even a state of distress. Then mm -hmm. it's so much easier. So it is it is what it is. 
And there is no shame in admitting that there bees do not feel guilty about anything like negative emotions like that. That was my biggest thing. I was so, the, the evil twins of, of, of shame and, and guilt, they were my constant companions. Right. And to a degree that they became one of the biggest obstacles and hurdles for me to get better. So it is, that is, when we're talking about to get out of your own way, there's so many, so many nuances and aspects of that little saying, but it is so true because here we are, um, uh, often enough we see what is wrong, but then there are, there are things that we put in front of ourselves and stop us, stop us getting right. there. Right. Right. And you know, I heard years ago in a meeting, you know, like we think that what we have been through is unique and that nobody else has been through it. Right. Like, because it's so personal to us, you know, there's so much shame and there's so much guilt, but then we think nobody else could possibly have done what we've done or possibly feel the way that we feel. And I remember being in a meeting and somebody being like, like, if you share something that I've never heard before, like, you know, it's just, it's just not possible because we've all done stuff. We've all experienced stuff. Uh you don't get out of this human experience without experiencing trauma at some point. Like it's, it's unless, you know, like if you get the privilege of living a life, you will experience trauma at some point. It is, it's part of being human. It's just part of it. And I think the more that we talk about like, Hey, it's part of it versus it's the separate thing. And you know, it only happens to certain people. No, it happens to all of us. <laughs> so true. So, so, so true. Yeah. And I, I remember that it, it took me, uh, it took me rehab to realize that because I was seething with resentment. I was so angry and I could blame a certain institution in my mind. Ah, oh, see, see what you guys have done to me. So I show you, I drink two bottles of vodka. Ha <laughs> ha, that will show you. <laughs> you know, that kind of bullshit in my head, but that was my life. So when I was a week into rehab, uh, my case manager asked me to write a letter to that institution and uh, be very specific, write it all down, put it all on paper. And boy, did I go to town. I wrote it all there, many pages, until my fingers cramped at night. <laughs> and uh, the next day I came to this woman and so I said, yeah, 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 come on, let's talk. Yeah, I have got it all here. Ah. And she sort of took the paper, folded it neatly in half, put it to the side and said, thank you so much. Now let's talk about you. And I said, mm. but, but uh, 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 no, no, let's talk about you. Yeah. And I was pissed off with her. And she said, by the way, here's a book I want you to read. And that book was written by a lady who, whose estranged husband one day came back on a beautiful summer morning uh, in her driveway proceeded to kill her kids in front of her and her father in front of her. Wow. And that all happened in the book within the first 10, 15 pages. Oof. And I was, uh, 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 in my mind, I was still in that pissing contest. Mm. So here I was very seething, full of resentment. And then I looked at that and I thought, that was the first time I recognized, wow, other people have gone through a lot of things too. And she beats me hands down. So I was still in this contest. So I, that was the moment when I started thinking. That was the moment when I actually started listening to other people's stories and listening how they described whatever it was, their trauma. And mm -hmm. it was how they described the trauma, which made me realize, hang on, they are suffering as much as I do. Their suffering is as pronounced. And some of them had awful things. And they were not suffering from that. They were suffering from other things more little things in comparison. And that's always amazes me. Everyone is experiencing their life in such a different way. So therefore, realizing that maybe makes it so much nicer for you to work in a big environment mm -hmm. where you deal with other people who are maybe not at their best today. Yeah. And instead of ripping into them and, and thinking, why do you not perform? Or why do you talk like that? Mm -hmm. You actually just have to think, well, wow. What was their trauma today kind of a thing? So that was all stuff that only came out after I had my own cage rattled in my rehab. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it is, I'm grateful for that, forever, ever grateful. Mm -hmm. Did you, how did you 
come out of that cycle of self-destruction? What were the, 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 the steps yeah, yeah. that brought so, you to salvation for the lack of a better word? Sure. So, you know, going back to that question you asked a few minutes ago about the drugs. So when uh, my mom died when I was 22 and my mom and I were really extremely close. Um, and so when she passed away, I, I was already drinking a ton. I'd already experienced, you know, a lot of uh, trauma and I'd already participated in behavior that I felt guilt and shame around. And so I, I barely graduated college and I was kind of floundering around and I met this guy who ended up being a drug dealer and he introduced me to crystal meth and I started dating him, started as I thought this is like the insanity of drugs is because when I was drinking, I would black out. And so when I started doing crystal meth, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever because I wasn't passing out. I wasn't blacking out. I was like coherent. And I was like, how is this illegal? <laughs> and alcohol is legal. Mm. Like I couldn't wrap my head around it. I know that, you know, I, I understand now, but at the time I just couldn't like, I just couldn't understand it. So I switched to using drugs all the time, um, all day, every day. And the relationship that I got in turned very quickly into emotional and mental abuse. And eventually it, it got physically abusive. And I went through, you know, a depression. I tried to commit suicide. We got into a fight. Uh, in public, so we both got arrested. So I had a simple assault charge, although that has been expunged now. But um, I just hit bottom after bottom after bottom. And people will say, you know, like, what happened? You know, did some big event happen? And, and it really wasn't some big event. It was just like multiple events over and over and over that happened where I just got to the point where I was like, I cannot continue to live like this. It's like, this isn't living. This is this is just absolutely miserable. So um, my family stepped in, they got me into, uh, an appointment with a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist, you know, <laughs> I don't know what he was expecting. I'm not sure he was expecting me to walk in and talk about, Hey, I'm a crystal meth addict, but they immediately got me into a detox facility. And then I, um, which was actually a uh, mental health inpatient for five days, which was, that's another story for another day. But, uh, from there I went into treatment and then from treatment, I went into, I moved cities and moved into a recovery house for almost a year. And that really took me off into a completely different direction than where I was going. Which is such a beautiful thing. It is, it is such a painful thing to come to that point. And yeah. remember the crystal meth was your one coping mechanism. And now suddenly that coping mechanism is gone. So mm -hmm. you find yourself empty, hurting and whatever you you were whatever crutch you had been using is suddenly gone and you're faced not only with quite a physical withdrawal often uh, um, that your body feels like crap your head feels like crap and so therefore it's actually really quite nice that to hear that you were in an institution where at least you were taken out of out of your bubble at home. And however that new bubble was, it was at least focused on you, getting you through those crucial first week to actually to actually support you with the right medications, the right vitamins, etc., to actually let you have a relatively safe withdrawal. Um, but then those those long weeks and months come where you actually have to deal with the shit that you have been burying for such a long time. Yeah. And well, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was in that uh, mental facility, the, when I was finished, they came in with the counselor and my dad and we sat down and we were you know, talking about what next steps and they ran my insurance and, uh, you know, insurance in, in the U S is, and has been, uh, I don't want to say a joke, but it's just been, it's just, it's not the best. And we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> leave it at that. Okay. They, they came in and this was, you know, 14, 15 years ago. And they said, your insurance will not cover inpatient. They will only cover outpatient treatment because you are a first time uh, admittee into the hospital. And I looked at my dad and I said, I will never make it if I go just outpatient and I want to be clear, like, I, it wasn't that I wanted to stop using drugs and alcohol. 
that was never the, that was never <laughs> that was never the idea it was that i wanted to stop feeling the way i was feeling i was so sick of myself and i was so sick of that like wanting to quit but can't quit minute by minute, second by second, thinking like, I can do this on my own. I can't do it on my own. I don't want to quit. Like that's just that <laughs> back and forth, like constant, just living in fear and living in fear. I was just like, I'm done. So, um, you know, my dad paid for my treatment and I, there were times in treatment when I'd be like, I want out of here. But then my dad's just put 10 grand down on this treatment. So I can't just walk out of here because that's going to hurt his, you know, like, you know, it took what it took. But, you know, that first year of living in a recovery house, I had to set my ego aside. You know, I had a big ego thinking, oh, I'm college educated and uh, 28. And now I live in a halfway house with a curfew. Like, you know, the stories we tell ourselves. And, um, probably the first bit of mindset that I didn't even realize I was applying that really helped was I just kept telling myself, it won't always be like this. You know, I'd come home, girls would be, you know, getting high or getting kicked out and I'd walk in my room and shut the door and be like, it won't always be like this. And it wasn't, you know, it just, it wasn't. And here we are. <laughs> exactly. Here you are. Here we are. And it is, it's this, this, this cliche of one day at a time is actually a brutal lie. It's not one day at a time. It's actually one hour, one moment at a time mm -hmm. uh, when you're in the first in the first few weeks of recovery. And yeah. because you have made so many different choices, choices that once upon a time made sense to you, but now you're, you're saying, well, actually, I don't want these choices anymore. But there is this void, this emptiness, uh, and you need to learn what other choices can you make What do they do to your body? So it's again trial and error. You essentially become a little toddler again and try to walk again, this time without the crutches that you had or without the, the training wheels on your little bike. Um, so it is. it was very strange for me. I remember that phase actually because I, I came home and there were certain things after that always rubbed me up the wrong way that my kids never washed up at, at the home. It was always a mess. It was always the certain things that really pressed my buttons mm -hmm. and where we often had rows and uh, probably it was not such a nice dad to them. And I came home and I started washing up and no argument, no nothing. I just started something different instead of crying or being upset about it, I've just washed up. And I'm sure my family looked at me at the start and thought, what the heck is going on now? But you try something new yeah. and like a new set of clothes and you don't know if that is your color. You just need to try it out. And mm -hmm. and so there are different behaviors that uh, you guys might not even have come across or thought about or, or been exposed to that are actually pretty, pretty cool. And that's that's that journey that Keegan alluded to that is waiting for you guys out there. So yeah. if you're still sort of the, in the, oh, I'm not addicted quite yet point, then uh, it is get yourself with your GP, with your family physician, get detoxed and actually start looking at your nutrition and 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 listen to people like Keegan or myself uh look at the books more importantly find a person that you can talk to find that human connection so when you were saying that initially your family rescued you for the lack of a better word so here you were in Uh, in inpatient rehab, and then thereafter, how did you find a group or a place with whom you could gel? So I was very fortunate in that I went to treatment at the Wilmington Treatment Center, which is in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is right by the beach. And uh, I had been living in Charlotte, which is in the, kind of the middle of the state. And so my choices when I got out of treatment were, I wasn't going to go back to Charlotte because I knew if I went back there, I'd just continue what I was doing. I could go with, live with my dad, but like I said, he drank and I knew that it You know, I could very easy manipulate him and say, well, I'm not doing drugs. I'll just drink. I knew I could do that with him. So I knew that that was not an option. And 
so many people in that treatment center just stayed in Wilmington and would just go into halfway houses. And so it was like just kind of this natural progression. Everybody else was doing it, you know? So I just, I did it. And then, um, you know, this was 14 years ago. So this, you know, the solution that was taught there is 12 step meetings. And so that's when, that's what I did. I went to 12 step meetings. That's what was offered. And um, believe me, if there had been something else back then, I would have tried that, you know, but that's, that's, that's what was offered. They said, this is what works. And so that's what I did. I did that along with therapy. And um, one of the things that I think 12 step meetings programs do extremely well is the community aspect of it. You know, when you go to those meetings, for better or for worse, you know, because there's some pros and cons about them, but the thing that they do really well is the community aspect. If you're willing to put yourself out there and meet people. And that for me was so helpful because yes, I had the women in the recovery house, but I also, you know, I found a sponsor. I found a network. I got really involved. I found that, you know, once I had six months in recovery, speaking on panels at H&I was my passion. I really fell in love with that. Finding those things that helped me feel good about myself was really important because my self-esteem was so low then. So, you know, helping other people really did help me to feel good about myself. And that's what really the community, you know, finding people, I don't, I know people do it on their own. I, I don't have that experience. I'm grateful, you know, to have had so many good friends in recovery because it just made life so much easier to have people in recovery. And the 12 steps, it's a very good program. It is, I, I wrote a book, My Steps to Sobriety, because mm -hmm. I went through a 12-step program. But uh, I, I have a far more pragmatic approach. You know, I've talked about it many times in this show. I think the reality is there are many ways how to get yourself straight and how to get the help that you need. And I think the 12 step program in its own right is superb. Uh, it makes sense to me. But the problem is that, that there are some groups that are very religious. And mm -hmm. if you're not religious, therefore you might end up in, in trouble there. That might not work with you. You struggle mm -hmm. with the word God. Uh, there are other groups that are completely secular. Um, mm -hmm. there, are, there are groups that are specific for your own niche. So LGBTQ+, there are groups specific for that. Um, if you are a woman in recovery, there is that, uh, if you're a woman and rather because of sexual trauma, etc., would like to share it only with women, there are women's groups and, and women in recovery. There is there's life ring if you're a more scientifically minded person and don't want to initially deal with the trauma so much, but rather look scientifically what helps people and work with that. So nowadays there's really no more excuse for mm. you not to tap into, into a system. Sure. And it's especially now with, with COVID and the rapid rise of online connectivity, it is so beautiful because literally at any one moment in time, you can join a meeting. Yeah, and with the rise of social media, we've just we've it's exploded in the past five or six years. Like when I got into recovery, there was so much shame around mm. stigma of being an addict, and mm. I certainly didn't go around talking to other people outside mm. of recovery. Exactly. I think I had almost seven, six or seven years before I really started telling people, and that was with my yoga community. I would tell my friends there, and then um, I started speaking publicly about it. Uh, I think right about 10 years because I went to a Naranon meeting, I was asked to come in there and speak and share my story. And afterwards, so many of the parents and the spouses would came up to me. It was so humbling because they had, so many of them had lost their children to the disease of addiction or their spouse. And they would just like congratulate me and thank me. It was, it just, it broke my heart. And I walked out of there like, I have to do something to help. Excuse me. <laughs> I just, I had to do something to help. And so from that point, I made it a point to talk about my experience and share it because it's that shame and that guilt that kills people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, Keegan. And it is, it is the, same, the same wave of emotion still wash over me the same way. It is, it is, why the hell do I go out there here as a doctor 
I'm an anesthetist. I'm I'm a guy who was sort of yeah, a pillar of society. Blah, yeah. Um, but here I am, and I'm saying, yes, I'm an anesthetist. I'm and I'm an alcoholic in recovery. Yeah. You're what? Uh, and it is it is oh, it is such a such a beautiful thing, such a empowering thing to actually speak out about it. It is a big drama in my life that I'm an addict, yet I'm, I can make sense out of this trauma now because I can talk about it. I can show other people this is what I did to get myself clean and to, to now live a life where I'm proud of who I am where other people truly look up to me and not because I've got a, a title of sorts or a position of sorts. No, because I'm a man who is actually practicing extreme ownership, who is authentic, who is humble, hopefully, uh, where, where I try to be that person that I really want to be. And most of the time I'm succeeding. And that yeah. is really lovely to have the integrity, to do the right things when no one is watching. That's not me 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. it is beautiful. So, and it, 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 from now and then stops me in my tracks. And, and you had a moment of few wet, wet uh, oh. tears there. Yeah. I, from now and then get a little bit of uh, dust in the eye as well. Um, <laughs> which in the own, own, see, I'm saying now I, I want to make a joke out of it. I get a bit dust in my eye. Bullshit. Yeah. I get tears. Because yeah. I nowadays can live with my emotions. I can live with the fact that I shed a tear. I can, I can be more honest, authentic. I don't have to, to disguise it anymore. I don't have to, to put a mask up anymore. And that is such a liberation. I, I can only speak so many words on it and then I'm lacking words because it's such a powerful emotion. So Keegan, it's so beautiful to see your tears mm. because that is honesty. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, this is Keegan White. That's the real Keegan White there sitting there. Okay. <laughs> not 15 masks there. Not, right. not nothing more. Hello, Keegan. Uh, yeah. It is lovely to meet you. Well, hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's beautiful. And nowadays you're there and you're actually trying to teach others uh, to to learn from your lessons. And you uh, tell us a bit about your work that you're doing now. So now I work primarily with women in women in business who are heart centered, specifically around around how to break through the limiting beliefs and the self doubt and the imposter syndrome that they tell themselves and. I think, you know, we're really starting to understand the brain more and more. There's a lot more research coming out. And so a lot of the clients that come to me, they feel frustrated and they feel stuck. Um, they know they've got the potential. They just don't know how to like get out of their own way. And what they don't understand is that, and this is what I hope I can share with your audience, is that so much of our thinking is two things. One, it is conditioned. And it's conditioned from how what you were taught as a small child. We are adults running around this planet <laughs> with operational skills or programming from when we were children. And we don't even realize it. We don't even realize it. You know, we're, it's on a subconscious level. You're running around and you're trying to do this stuff and you can't do it. And it's because you have a subconscious belief that is present, preventing you from being able to move forward. So there's the conditioning, but then there's also the habitual way of thinking. Like, and so I think people that are listening to this can probably identify with this a little bit more than maybe people who have a struggle with addiction, because, you know, we get what it's like to struggle with a substance. Like we know what that is. Well, our thinking is the exact same thing. You know, we, we have these neural pathways in our brain. There are deep grooves in the brain. And the more that you think that way, the deeper the groove gets. And that just becomes a habitual way of thinking. And so again, when we can look at it for what it is, it's a habit. It's not a reflection of you. It's just an opportunity we get to break it. So that's that's really how I work with client, is clients is helping them you know, unpack the habitual way of thinking and really like, let's look at the subconscious beliefs. Because when you can unlock your subconscious thoughts your unconscious beliefs, that is where transformation truly happens for people. 
for those of you who can remember that music once upon a time was played on vinyl uh, where there are grooves in there and you can imagine the same song playing over and over and over again well take a screwdriver to that bloody vinyl and go okay so that will change the tune Rest me, and we sometimes you need to change the tune. So mm-hmm. if we can actually wipe out these grooves and and change things, uh, put different meanings onto certain traumas, put different meanings onto mm-hmm. your onto your experiences in your life, that can be such an empowering and beautiful thing. And then suddenly, you wonder how the hell did that ever stop me becoming the person that I truly wanted to be. Mm-hmm. But of course, with that comes that most of us don't know what we want to be. Right. We want to be somehow better. I want to be richer. I want to be uh, whatever whatever your goals are. I want to be slim. Um, but there is, there is this kind of vague, nebulous, abstract kind of thing. So most of us don't have a clear, crystal clear vision, laser sharp. And then say, okay, there is this vision there. I'm here. What steps do I need to take to actually get into that vision? So that's number one. And that's probably something that you probably help clarify quite a lot to start off with, isn't it? I do. And then the other thing that we really look at is because a lot of people say, yeah, I want to make more money or I want to be thin. And so they, they, they go about these strategies you know, maybe they have a plan. Maybe they don't. This is why, this is why New Year's resolutions fail is because people are like, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. And then, you know, you come up with these strategies. But then what's happening, again, going back to the subconscious, what's happening on the subconscious level. If you have a belief in there that says, you know, making money is bad or, you know, you were taught as a kid that only you know, rich people are bad people. Uh-huh. You're operating from that belief of rich people are bad people. You are going to do whatever you can to actually sabotage yourself so that you don't make money. And it's the same thing with losing weight. If you have this belief inside of you that it's not safe to make money or it's not safe to, to lose the weight, to be seen, then again, you might set this goal on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, you're going to sabotage yourself. So that's, that's really how I work with clients is, yes, let's set the goals, but let's also unpack the beliefs that are underneath that are keeping you from really being able to set, make those goals happen. So true, so true, isn't it? Yeah. And mm-hmm. that is, and that's the weird thing. But for that, guys, you need someone on your side mm-hmm. because that someone is listening to what you say and often enough also listening to what you don't say. Because mm-hmm. I certainly, for a long time, I, I, I did not realize how my subconscious works, how that reptilian brain works and why it works like that. And even nowadays, I get surprises. It was only only two years ago now, even less than that, that I recognized that I was suffering from PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I, because in my mind, my mind had warped it all in a, in a positive way. There was this trauma and I became a fighter and I'm now the man who is always aware of his surroundings. Cool. Yeah. Um, in reality, I was hypervigilant. I was constantly anxious. I was constantly at all the hallmarks of PTSD. And it was until someone actually held that mirror in front of me. I thought, huh, that makes sense. But you need someone with whom you can work, with who can reflect back what you're saying. And suddenly, hmm. by hearing it in different words from someone else, you think, huh. And it's, it's that kind of aha moments that are so important. That's where the breakthrough happens in your therapy, in your, and if you don't like therapy, they call it personal development, in your, mm-hmm. in your path of becoming a better you, the you that you want to be, not, not the person that is, that is quietly unhappy. Right. And it, that is so amazing. So, Keegan, people like you are so necessary out there because this world is slowly going to hell in a paper basket, honestly. <laughs> um, so the more we can actually work on ourselves. Mm-hmm. So don't just try to, to change the world, guys. How about you try to work on yourself and okay. try to get your own shit together, try to get the hurdles out of the way that... Mm-hmm block you from going forward and actually becoming that person who is happy and 
and feels lucky that she is alive and is getting up in the morning and looking at in the mirror and say, wow, the hair is frizzy. Who cares? Not, oh my God, my hair is frizzy. Oh my God, oh God, I need to go to work. You're not that kind of a thing. That is, oh, especially women. I mean, you women out there, if you listen to that, if a man says, wow, you really look good today, do you truly say, oh, thank you very much. That's nice of you because you're happy with yourself. Or do you think, oh my God, what is he looking at? I'm sure there is something, oh my God. Uh, my wife forever could not take compliments. She sure. always thought I was thinking, uh, I was telling her, I don't know what. Uh, and I said, you just look gorgeous. But why do you think I look gorgeous? My hair is there and I have got makeup on. And, <laughs> and I said, you look gorgeous. She didn't believe me. So these are the, the, the kind of things that if you recognize yourself in there, that's a pretty good place to start because you're obviously not so happy with yourself. Figure that out. Why? Why? And then do something about it. And if you can, then do. And if you can't, then cool. If dealt with that, you can move on now. And that's yeah. that's that's where Keegan is there. Hey, that's cool. Keegan, tell me, where can people find you? Where so can- I have, yeah, yeah. So my website is keeganwhitecoaching.com. Same thing on Instagram, Keegan White Coaching. Um, I also have a Facebook group. So if you have any heart centered women who are listening, what's a mindset? Tips and tricks. You can find uh, me on the Facebook group, which is Heart Centered. What is it? Let me always get it screwed up. It's uh, Mindset Coaching, Heart Centered. I don't know. <laughs> One of those things. Find <laughs> me, <laughs> me like, on Facebook, Keegan yeah. White. And I'm like, it's like Mindset Coaching, Heart Centered, something like that. No, that's, guys, we'll make it easy for you uh, because obviously, oh, yeah, that's why we put it down into the description <laughs> of, of this video and of our podcast. Because yeah. bottom line is, it is, uh, there is, if you, if you don't know where to start, well, that's an easy way to start. Uh, connect with other women and to see where they are at in their journey and uh, how some of those women maybe have dealt with similar problems, real or perceived, Mm -hmm. uh, in their lives that you are suffering from or that you have encountered. And I think that's that's the beautiful, beautiful thing. When I was in rehab, um, I... I thought I'm all alone. There's no one who could have ever experienced something like that. Certainly not a doctor. And my God, what a shame that I bring to my profession. And one of the very first things after through the after my detox stage, uh, the boss of the rehab said, "Come on, we go for a drive. I introduce you to someone." And we met a guy for coffee, and I recognized him. He was one of my colleagues, and he was one of my colleagues who had who was in the same field, who had been, who I knew, and I was quite, okay, yeah, he's, he's a good good dude. And it turn out, turns out that he was an addict as well. Mm-hmm. And he had his own journey, his own demons, etc. And I was gobsmacked. I was absolute. Sure. It's just crazy. And we had sort of half an hour of a quiet coffee. He told me about his life. He told me and showed me um, that he got clean and and... And it was the most revealing and beautiful thing. And it, is, it, it showed me I am not alone. And it showed me that, uh, that we can get our act together, sometimes against all odds, but we can get our act together. And once you're on that path, then and you do the right work. It's actually very likely that you will succeed. Okay, I think you, if you get in a good program and do all the right work, I think you have got an 80% chance to actually yeah. get better and where your addiction melts away like snow in the spring and you get the odd bump still lying around, a bit of ice lying around. That's okay. Sure. You don't have yeah. to go there. Um, it's still there. The addiction will never leave you, but mm-hmm. the way you manage your life is so beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's. That's please. If there's one big message that you take away from today, is guys, you can live a life that you're proud of, and people like Keegan will help you to get mm-hmm. to that point. Please just Google 
uh, helplines because this is an international show. I can't put all the possible helplines in every single country down there. So therefore, please Google because Google will do automatically find something in your area. And there are so many people out there who have been down and out and are now dedicated to helping others. And these helplines are gold. These helplines are so beautiful. Um, if you don't want to do that, make an urgent appointment with your with your family physician or GP, because mm -hmm. he knows you from a from a medical point of view, and can look at those things that uh, maybe are underlying some of your emotions. There might be hormonal problems as a girl. There might be um, medical problems, the fire rate not working, etc. So they they're good good reasons that we want to check out. And then there is a beautiful journey waiting for you now that you have recognized that you are, that it's, it's time to make that next step, time to get better. So Keegan, before we leave, if you had the chance to send a, to send yourself back in time to talk yeah. to the younger girl that you were, what message would you send back? Oh, you know, I ironically, I've done a lot of work around this. So if I went back, you know, to middle school, Keegan, before, you know, it, things really started hitting the fan, I, I would just hug her and let her know, like, it's not always going to be like this. And, 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 and I'd also probably encourage her to talk to her mom a little bit more about the, the, I think the depression that was setting in at that age. I think if I could have gotten that under wraps, it would have been helpful. Um, you know, to Keegan and active addiction, oh, man, I, I've thought about this so many times. I would just tell her, you are going to come out of this. You're going to get away from this guy. You're going to go on to live an incredible life. You're going to marry a man that is loving and kind and compassionate. You're going to go on and help women better themselves. Just hang on, just hang in there. Cause what you're feeling like right now, it won't always be like this. <laughs> oh, how beautiful. How beautiful. Keegan, now, now my eyes get a bit watery. Um, it is because yeah. it is such a, no, it is such a beautiful message. And I, my messages to my own previous me are very similar. They're very, very similar. So yeah. uh, who needs two X chromosomes when you can have a Y as well? So yeah, but but otherwise we are we are we are um, siblings in arms, yeah, so to speak. Keegan, I'm so humbled and honored to, for you to have come onto my show. Um, it was a lovely, lovely interview. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and share with your guests. I really appreciate it. And you guys out there, please make the most out of this day. And just don't take no for an answer. Look for ways forward to achieve that beautiful person to come out of you that that you want want it to happen. So go out there, make this a fantastic day. Look after yourself, guys. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.